Hi, my name's Mark Shipman, and we moved here May 31st of uh, 2012, and we were leaving Sunday morning for the mission trip, and Friday afternoon, I received a call that, um, that I had been diagnosed with cancer. We went to church that Saturday night, and um, after service, you know, Tunch, good to see you, brother, what's going on? And, and I told him, um, you know, I have cancer. Stopped everything he was doing and grabbed me and hugged me and started praying for me right there. Parents of, of students, you know, people that I didn't know, or I mean, they would come up to me and it was a, you know, we really care about you. They made us meals. Everybody was so loving and they made a, a poster for me. I mean, you know, you, you rock the crazy socks and, you know, we love you. And, but I didn't expect that from them. And then I, I didn't expect the impact that it would have on me. When you're going through a trial, you may not understand it at the time, but the blessing is in the breaking. I mean, when, when the trial is over and and you're looking at it in your rearview mirror and you see how God has worked in your life and how God has worked in other people's lives to impact you, um, you just can't imagine a world without Him. So someone has well said, there's nothing that worked quite like the church when? Church is working right. And in Mark's life, there was a time when the church worked right. He needed prayer and everyone from Tunch to the teenagers were there to encourage him and to uh, help him and to, to lift him up. And the backstory of that is Lorraine and Mark were connected in their service uh, here at the Bible Chapel in many different ways. And because of that necessary connection they had when they needed a time in their life to be lifted up, there were people right there ready to help them, ready to walk beside them. The, ne the necessary connections are the, the touch points when Mark needed to be surrounded people and minister to them as he had been ministering to others. Now, you may be called to serve uh, in the youth group, or you may be called to serve in the children's ministry. You may be called to serve uh, someplace that everyone sees or places that no one sees. God, of course, always sees. And wherever... Uh, whatever God has gifted you, whatever he's trained you with, we have a place for you to serve here. I want to, I want to show you one group of guys, uh, if you would put them up on the screen. Uh, you guys know that uh, we just finished our special needs uh, wing, and uh, it takes a lot of people to get that done, from our architect, Jim Sampi, who uh, designed the building, to Gino Torero and, and his uh, company that built it, to our building team. And uh, this group of guys, some of them have been involved in every building we've done here, uh, others more recently, but it's amazing to see these individuals use their gifts and use their abilities for early morning meetings and late night meetings to make sure uh, we have a building that's built well, that comes in uh, uh, um, the price that, uh, that we need, and we're just appreciative of these guys. So from left to right, uh, Don uh, Green, uh, Barry Ford, uh, I'd have these guys stand up, but they wouldn't do it. So I just uh, put their picture up there 
uh, instead. Uh, Bill Harmon uh, on the back row is Kurt Marino, Tim King, Dave Stoughton, Mike Swisher, who chairs uh, the team, and Cleet uh, Kadrovac. Ron Emanuel is also on the team, but he's not there. Now, these guys not only have been involved in building, but when we uh, have an opportunity to to uh, have a church opportunity in another area with our multi-sites. They're the ones we call and they go check out, check it out. They tell us uh, not worth the price or yeah, it's in line. Here are the things that need to be done to it. And we can't tell you how much we appreciate uh, all the work these guys have done. So would you join me in thanking them for their work? There's a place for service for you here at the Bible Chapel. And you can use your gifts and your training, as these guys have, to build the kingdom of God. We also have a celebration service coming up November 21 and 22. And in that service, just like you heard from Mark, we have a, it's a service of stories. It's a, our baptism time. And uh, people are share, they share their testimonies uh, before their baptisms. We record those. We put them up in all of our campuses, whether in Wilkinsburg or Robinson or Washington or here. It's a great opportunity for us just to celebrate what God has done. If you have not been baptized as a believer, we encourage you to do that. It doesn't make you more of a, it doesn't make you a Christian. It doesn't make you more of a Christian. It does not complete your Christian walk. What it does is you're driving a stake in the ground and saying, I am all in for Jesus Christ. And I want everyone to see it. Going under the water, into the water, identifying with the death of Christ, under the water, the, uh, the burial of Christ, out of the water, the resurrection of Christ, a beautiful symbol of the Christian life. So that's 21 and 22 of November. And we have classes to prepare you for that. You can see those in your bulletin. We encourage you to be a part of that. Father, thank you for all you are doing among us. Thank you for the things you do in our lives. We thank you for the, for the great blessings. And we also acknowledge, Lord, as hard as it is, that, uh, that sometimes the blessings are the, come through the, the most challenging times in our life. And so I pray for all of us here today, whatever we're going through, wherever we are, and I pray, Lord, that you would speak directly to our hearts. In Christ's name, amen. We're involved in the series of sermons we've titled Necessary Connections. It's a series about community. And we are going through the letters that Paul wrote to the early churches to see what types of things the early church dealt with, and even more importantly, to see how Paul addressed those issues. Right, we looked at Acts, that Paul didn't write Acts, but we looked at Acts early on to see some of the components of the early church. We looked at the book of Romans to learn that, uh, that the gospel, the word of God, not just the four spiritual laws gospel, but all of God's word, the good news, is to be the foundation or the anchor of the church. We looked at 1 Corinthians and we learned last time that the church in Corinth was a messy place. Things were going on there that Paul said even the pagans uh, don't even talk about. But Paul wrote to them and he addressed them. He didn't let things like that fester. He addressed the issues. And then we saw in Romans, or in 1 Corinthians 13, how that love chapter, not just written so we could have it for weddings, right? It was written so that Paul could remind the people, here's how you interact with each other. And all the messiness and all the stuff going on, all the things that frustrate you and irritate you, even in your disillusionment and your disappointment, be patient with each other, kind to each other. 
We don't carry our bags with us all the time. We forgive each other just as Christ has forgiven us. Well, another area that Paul addressed in his letter to the Corinthians that they were having some issues with was the area of money, the issue of money. C.H. Spurgeon said there are two salvations. Uh, One is the salvation of the heart, and then tongue-in-cheek, he said, one is the salvation of the pocketbook. Jesus addressed uh, money over and over again in his teaching. And if you ever want to quiet an audience, just say, here's a sermon about money, right? Or sex, those two things, quiet every time. My inclination in my life often is to jump to action, to do something. And that's great. But sometimes we need to just slow down a little bit and ask the question, why are we doing this? What's the motive behind it? How should we do that? And Paul addresses both of those things in his letter to the Corinthians. I want to tell you today that this is not a sermon about the budget. This is not a sermon about beyond these walls. This is a sermon about an issue that every one of us, myself included, have to deal with in our lives. God calls money the other God. And it certainly can become that. In living in the affluent uh, areas we live in, And everyone uh, listening to this sermon in Wilkinsburg or Robinson or Washington, we live in affluency in our country based on everyone else in the world. We have to deal with this thing called money or it will eat us alive and it will rip from us not only the joy of the Christian life, but if we don't get a hold of this other God, we will never be the believer that's God called us to be. So take your Bibles and turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 8. Let me set the context while you're turning there. This is a fascinating passage of Scripture. The, the church in, in uh, Jerusalem was the mother church, right? They were going through some challenging times. Perhaps it was due to the persecution that broke out in Acts chapter 8. Perhaps it was due to the widespread famine we read about in Acts chapter 11. Probably it was both. But the church in Jerusalem, they they were experiencing devastating times. The believers there were in great needs. Now, when a country today or a people in our country or abroad, when there is a natural disaster, what do we do? We put out the newsletters, we get on the radio, we get on the television, and we collect funds so that we can help these people out. Well, that's what Paul did as he traveled to the different churches. He said, hey guys, the the church in Jerusalem, they're in need, they're hurting, they're devastated, and we, we all need to pull together because we're believers, right? Church big C, we're in this thing together. Brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ, we help each other out. The Christians in Jerusalem, they're hurting. You need to give. Corinth is about 800 miles across the Mediterranean from Jerusalem. And when when the Corinthians believers heard that the the church in Jerusalem was uh, was in need, they got excited. They started participating. 
They, they jumped on board. In fact, their initial giving was so strong that Paul used them as an example for giving. He said, hey, you want to know what giving looks like? Check out the church in Corinth, man. They lead the way. But somewhere along the line, the Corinthians lost their enthusiasm. That ever happened to you? Gung-ho? <laughs> Until we're not gung-ho. They didn't follow through with their commitment. In fact, a year went by. A year went by, and they still had not completed what they had committed to do. So in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, Paul challenges the Corinthians to finish what they started. I see in these verses about 10 principles of giving. And I don't have time to go through all of them today. If you'd like to see all 10, give me an email and I'll tell you where you can find them or I'll send them to you. Today I want to look at these three. I think these are the most important three of the 10. Here's the first one. Giving is an act of worship. Giving is an act of worship. Chapter 8, verses 1 and 2, and now brothers, and brothers is generic, brothers, sisters, we want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches. Out of the most severe trial, their overflowing joy, their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. Now, you remember that Paul had used the Corinthians, the quick start Corinthians, as an example to motivate others, but they fizzled out. And so now he uses another example. He uses the church in Macedonia, the Macedonian churches. The believers in Macedonia, Paul says, were experiencing severe trials. We don't know exactly what they were, and they were going through extreme poverty, but they did not let their circumstances keep them from worshiping. They did not let their circumstances, they did not use their circumstances as an excuse to stop giving. Worship means that God's worth is demonstrated in every area of my life. Not some areas, not the areas I want it to be demonstrated in. It is demonstrated in every area. Giving is just as much an act of worship as it is to come and sing praises to God. And we raise our hands and we sing praises, and that's fantastic. That's a demonstration of our worship. Giving is just as much an act of worship as serving, and that's fantastic as we use our gifts to serve others. Giving is just as much an act of worship as sharing the message of Jesus Christ with others, and that is tremendous that we do that. It's a command to do that. But we've got to make sure that we just don't raise our hands in worship and hold really tight to the monies that God's given us. The Macedonians in extreme poverty could not be held back. Rich generosity flowed even from their severe trials and extreme poverty. They would not use their circumstance for an excuse. Christians do that, don't they? But once I get to college and get those debts paid off, then I'll start giving. Once I get my kids to college, then I'll start giving. Once I get my stuff under control, because I got a lot of stuff, then I'll start giving. 
the Macedonians who had nothing said no excuses. Look at verse three. Paul said, for I testify that as much as they were able and even beyond their ability, they gave entirely on their own. They urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in the service to the saints. Verse five, and they did not do as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then to us in keeping with God's will. Paul said the Macedonian church was in such a fine, extreme poverty that we, we didn't even ask them to give. We needed to give to them. We were focused on Jerusalem, but the church in Macedonia, I didn't even want to go ask them for money. They were such, in, in such extreme poverty, but they, they wouldn't hear of that. They pleaded with us for the, for the privilege of giving. Out of their most severe trial, they gave generously. How do you do that? How do you not be so sorry for yourself, for your situation, that you hold that back and say, I ain't given to anyone. I need it worse than they do. How does that happen? Look at verse 5. They didn't do as we expected, Paul says, but they gave themselves what? First to the Lord. That's, that's where it happens. Are you sold out to Christ? Have you given yourself to the Lord? Everything. Not some stuff. Everything. When the heart's in the right place, the amount will always be the right amount. It's never about the amount. It's about the attitude of the heart. The last time I was in Nairobi, Kenya, in the Mathari slums, I was talking to a bunch of kids and uh, they were gathered around and I just wanted to get an idea of what it was like to live in the slums. What were some of the things they thought about and aspired to? And uh, I talked to a bunch of them and they all had stories. And there was this little girl named Joyce. She was uh, probably 12 or 13. And so I asked her, you know, where you live? And, and they go to this uh, AIC Zion school uh, there in the slums. And, and uh, she told me that uh, where she lived. And she said, I get up about 5.30 in the morning. And she said, I prepare myself uh, for the day. Uh, she got her breakfast. And then took her about 30 minutes to get ready. And then she walked 40 minutes across the slum to AIC Zion school. Went there all day. It's where she would get her two meals for that day. And then she walked back. So I said um, to these kids, you know, when you get older, what do you want to be? What do you want to do? You know what Joyce told me? Joyce said, I want to be a donor for needy children. And I said, well, that's pretty cool, Joyce. It's going to take some money to do that. She said, I'm going to be a doctor. But what I really want to do is to be a donor for needy children. See, most people want to make money so they can have more stuff, right? This, this heart of this little kid in poverty in the slums where raw sewage flows down the middle of the street, where there's no running water in the house. She goes to sleep tonight on a mat on a dirt floor. She said, I want to give. It's not about the amount. It's all about the heart. Giving is an act of worship. 
Don't let Satan deceive you to think you're a worshiper if you just come and sing songs on a Sunday morning. Don't let Satan deceive you to think you're a servant if you're involved in some area of service here at the church. Don't let Satan tell you that uh, giving is optional and it's okay to take care of all this other stuff here on your own because you've got to live well, right? I mean, we, we live in the... We live in the burbs of Pittsburgh. We've got a standard to keep. Don't let Satan ever tell you that how you handle your money is just as important as all the other things that we do and call ourselves worshipers. Principle number two. Great giving is prompted by grace and love. Look at verse 6. So we urge Titus, since he had made, uh, he had earlier made a beginning, he had been there before and started your commitment, to bring also to completion this act of grace on your part. But just as you excel in everything, in faith and speech and knowledge and complete earnestness in your love for us, see that you also excel in the grace of of giving. Two things there in that verse. First of all, note act of grace. The action prompted by God's grace. The act of grace. Part of giving. And the grace of giving. The result of God's grace. And just to drive that home, all this is a response to God's grace. To drive that home, look at verse 8. Paul said, I'm not commanding you. By the way, this is important. No one commands you to give. If you are forced to give, do not give. Your heart's not in the right spot. If you are ever guilted into giving, do not give. Your heart's in the wrong spot. Paul says, I can't command you to do this, but I want to test the sincerity of your love by comparing it with the earnestness of others. For you know the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. By the way, let me remind you of what Jesus has done for you, Paul says. That though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that through his poverty you might become one. Every spiritual blessing there is. Paul saying, are you going to respond to Jesus or not? Donald Whitney in the book Spiritual uh, D- Disciplines of the Spiritualized says, if you love Christ with all your heart, your giving will reflect that. If you love Christ more than anything else, your giving will show that. If you are truly submitted to the Lordship of Christ, if you are willing to obey him completely in every area of your life, your giving will reveal that. We do many things before we give someone else, even Christ, the rights over every dollar we will have or ever will have. But if we've done that, it will be expressed in your giving. So let's just lay it on the line, all right? When a person doesn't serve, when a person doesn't give, you've got to look them in the eye sooner or later and ask them a hard question. Do you really love Jesus or not? 
Do you really love Christ or is this church thing some game? When a person doesn't give, you have to ask the hard question. Is your life driven by grace or is it driven by greed? When, when a person doesn't give generously, you got to ask the question, do you really understand what Jesus did for you? Although he was eternally rich, being God himself, he became poor so that you, who are spiritually bankrupt, could have every spiritual blessing in the world through eternity. Until we, until we understand that, we're always going to have a problem with giving. And we're going to have a problem in growing in our walk with Christ. Number three, practical planning is critical in godly giving. So I know that many of you are new to the faith, and I know that many of you uh, are new to our church, and some of you have been around for a long time. Practical planning, I want to tell all of you, all of us, practical planning is important in the area of giving. It's just not something, you know, we kind of do spontaneous at the end of the month if we have enough money left over. We need to plan for it. So how do you begin to determine how you can worship God in giving? How can you begin this process? Look at chapter 9, verse 2. Paul said, for I know your earnestness to help, and I have been boasting about it to the Macedonians, telling them that since last year, you and Achaia were ready to give, and your enthusiasm has stirred most of them to action. But I am sending the brothers in order that our boasting about you in this matter should not prove hollow, but that you may be ready, as I said you would be. For if any of the Macedonians come with me and find you unprepared, we, not, not to say anything about you, would be ashamed of having been so confident. Hear what Paul's saying? I'm going to come and I'm going to talk to you. I have been bragging about you to the Macedonians, those generous people living in poverty. And when I come and you haven't completed your gift and I was bragging about you, in fact, your initial giving inspired them. But when we come and you haven't completed your gift, I'm going to be ashamed, you're going to be ashamed, and the Macedonians are going to be confused. So let's plan this thing. Let's start what we, what we finish. So Paul communicated this to an advanced team led by Titus. He wanted to help them get their act together. Look at verse 5. So I thought it necessary to urge the brothers to visit you in advance of my visit and the Macedonians coming to finish the arrangements for the generous gift that you had promised. Then it will be ready as a generous gift, not one as what? Grudgingly given. There's the difference, isn't it? Generous giving and grudgingly giving. So there are five practical steps in giving. Here's the first one. Five practical steps for planning your giving. Number one, prayer. Not surprising, is it? Prayer. Look at chapter 9, verse 7. Each man, again generic, each man or woman should give what he or she has decided in his heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves what? 
cheerful giver. How do you decide what to give? You pray. You ask God to open your heart. You tell God, you know what? I don't want to hold anything back. I want, I want you to have all of me. And I want you to have all of the money you've given me because it's yours. Everything I have is from you. You allowed me to be born in this country or you allowed me to have the benefits of this country. You gave me every brain I had so that I could go through school and so that I could train. You've given me the, the business. You've given me the job. Everything I have is from you and I want to use everything I have to honor you. How can I do that? How do I start doing that? So you need to pray. I, I heard about uh, three men who tried something different. Uh, one of them said, well, what I do is I just draw a line in the dirt and I take all my money and I just throw it up in the air. Whatever lands on the right side is mine. Whatever lands on the left side is God's. The other guy said, well, I, I kind of do the same thing, but just the opposite. Whatever lands on the left side is mine. Whatever lands on the right side is God." One guy said, now you guys have it all messed up. Here's what I do. I throw all my money up in the air. Whatever God wants, he keeps. Whatever lands back on the ground, <laughs> it's mine. Some of our planning for giving is about like that, isn't it? And we need to begin with prayer. God, how do you want me to use these gifts that you have given me? Number two, give regularly. Uh, flip back to 1 Corinthians chapter 16. 1 Corinthians 16, where Paul kind of starts this uh, conversation about uh, giving. Chapter 16, 1 Corinthians 16, verse 2. Uh, Paul says, on the first day of every week, each one of you should set aside a sum of money in keeping with his income, saving it, up, saving it up so that when I come, no collections will have to be made. Now, in Paul's day, uh, most people were paid every day. At the end of the day, you got your money for that day, and then you went home and you bought whatever you needed to have food for that day. Well, that's not like our day. So I do not believe uh, this says, uh, you know, every time you show up for church, uh, you should give. I don't think that's what it means. But it means give regularly. Make giving an act of worship. While I don't think it means every Sunday, I don't think it means that I just give once a year. That's kind of like a duty rather than worship, Right? So as you plan, do it regularly so that it is a part of your worship, just not something we do at the end of the year before taxes. It is a part of worship. Give regularly. Next, look again at chapter 16, verse, verse 2. Give proportionally. On the first day of every week, each one of you should set aside a sum of money in keeping with his what? with his income, right? So it, your giving should be determined on how God has blessed you. Now, someone says, yeah, but you're talking about a tithe. No, I'm not talking about a tithe. I know that that's our 
tradition of many in, in the church, if you've been and raised in the church, tradition of giving tithe. There's absolutely nothing wrong with that unless, unless a tithe is given as a checkbox and it's given legalistically. Unless it's given reluctantly. You should never say, oh, I tithe, boom, 10%. That's it. Check the box. That's great. We should, for some people, 10% is a drop in the bucket. God blesses you so that you can prayerful, prayerfully determine how he wants you to give. It is to be proportionate with how he has blessed you. Someone said, give in proportion to God's blessing, lest he blessed you in proportion to your giving. Now, that's something we need to think about, isn't it? If you are a tither, that's fantastic. But I want to offer you this, this warning. Sometimes when we do things over and over and over and over again, we lose the worship and it becomes legalistic. And, and God's not worried about the amount. He owns the cattle on a thousand. He can probably take care of everything. Remember what he says? If I needed something to eat, I don't have to ask you. I can handle that. He wants your heart. He wants your heart. When he has your heart, everything flows from that. That's the why. Why is giving important? Because it's a demonstration that God has our heart. Why is generosity important? It's a demonstration that, that we have finally come to grasp as much as we can with the tremendous grace of Jesus Christ who was rich but became poor so we who are poor could become rich. God wants our heart. So in the New Testament, there is no 10% tithe taught. It's right here, Second, 1 Corinthians 16. Keeping with your income. That's between you and God. By the way, I don't know who gives what. Honestly, don't. Now, I'm not stupid. Well, that's a, okay. <laughs> um, I know we're blessed, right? So, um, God expects a lot from those he blesses. Number four, giving should be a priority. Look at verse two again, uh, verse chapter 16 on the first day of the week. Each one of you should set aside money, saving it up, so that when I come, no collection will have to be made. Make it a priority. Your gifts should not be uh, at the end of the month or two-week period or week, whatever. Here's my money left over. I think God could use a little bit of that. It's called first fruit giving from the Old Testament, Proverbs 3, uh, 9. Honor the Lord with your wealth from the first fruits of your crops. Give to God first. And it's so amazing how he takes care of you when you give to him first. Last one, if you're struggling in this area, seek advice and seek accountability. When Paul wanted to keep the church in Corinth accountable, he sent three men to do it. Titus led the, led the way. We have uh, classes here. Uh, Dave Wall teaches a class called Fre uh, Freed Up Financial. And uh, this coming Wednesday, uh, I'm doing a class out in, uh, in, Rob in um, 
Washington, uh, marriage enrichment on uh, Wednesday nights. And I'm doing a conference in Panama this coming week. So uh, Dave Wall is going to take that class and he's going to be teaching on, on giving and what that means and what that looks like and what a heart of giving and the planning of that. We have about 70 or 80 people involved in that uh, marriage enrichment class, but I hear the people in Robinson saying they wouldn't mind if you came and sat in on that class because I think it'd be beneficial. And we can offer those to you uh, at later dates. But it's important that you understand what God has in mind regarding this thing called money. Isn't it? I know. It's not your favorite sermon. But you know what? It's not my least favorite sermon to preach. Because scripture over and over again says, unless God has your money, he does not have you. Money is a great servant, but is a brutal master. And one of these days, we're going to stand before God. You don't have to stand before me. But you're going to stand before God. And he's not going to be impressed with your stuff. He's going to say, you know, all that stuff I gave you, all that money I gave you, all the resources, what'd you do with it? What'd you do with it that you could look around right now here in eternity and see investment? Money is a tremendous servant, brutal master. So few historians argue that in 1923, the most powerful and successful men in the United States were these. Charles M. Schwab, president of the world's largest independent steel company. Anyone know? Bethlehem Steel. Samuel Insull, president of the world's largest utility company, Edison General Electric. Howard Hobson, president of the largest gas firm, Associated Gas and Electric System. Arthur Cutton, successful wheat speculator. Richard Whitney was the president of the New York Stock Exchange, 1923. Albert Fall was a member of President Warren Harding's cabinet. He was the Secretary of Interior. Leon Frazier was the president of the First National Bank of New York, Bank of International Settlements. Jesse Livermore was a successful stock market speculator. Ivor Kruger was a financier and head of the world's greatest monopoly. Anybody know what it was? Matches. He made his money with matches. The match king, he was called. They were the most powerful men. They even had a meeting together. The Edgewater Hotel in Chicago. Money is a great servant, isn't it? It is a brutal master. You know what happened to these guys 25 years later? 25 years later, by 1948, Charles M. Schwab had died bankrupt, living the last five years of his life on borrowed money. It said he left the legacy of a wife with syphilis and a mansion that stank of stale cigar smoke. Samuel Insull had died a fugitive from justice. P. 
penniless in a foreign land. Reports say that he uh, died of a heart attack in a a Paris metro station. Howard Hobson was committed to an insane asylum. Arthur Cutton died overseas without a penny to his name. Richard Whitney had just been released from Sing Sing Prison for some of his pyramid scheme operations. Albert Fall was pardoned from prison so he could die at home. Jesse Livermore, Leon Frazier, Ivan Kruger, you know what happened to them? Committed suicide. Kent Hughes writes this about these these men. Listen to what he says. The extraordinary sameness of the hellish gravity of their famous lives is a divine warning. For God sets the ghosts of these financial giants as witnesses to a nation about to run amok in materialism. Yet few take serious notice. Perhaps it's because most, especially if they are Christians, do not aspire to be the head of the world's greatest monopoly or to the vulgar display of the lifestyles of the rich and famous. Instead, they are content to cultivate a less encumbering level of wealth. Did you hear that? Instead, we are content to cultivate a less encumbering level of wealth, not realizing that the danger for themselves are the same as for the super rich. Here are the dangers. A growing delusion that the world is everything. That someday they will be content. That quote-unquote providing for one's family means being able to give them more and better. That relationships will be enriched by wealth. That wealth will make them better people. It's true, isn't it? We buy right into Satan's lie, hook, line, and sinker. And when it comes to the money, the picture for so many Christians is Satan on one end with his hook in our mouth, dragging us wherever he wants us to go. Until we get a grasp on how God wants us to use the tremendous resources he's given us, we cannot be the believer he wants us to be. We can't be the church he wants us to be. And that takes place one person at a time, on your knees, in prayer before God, asking him, God, what do you want me to do with this tremendous blessing that you've given me? Because I want to deal with it today, knowing that one day I'm going to be standing and looking at you face to face, and I don't want to be ashamed. Father, do your work in our hearts. Don't let anyone here believe that it's about amount. Remind us with your power that it's about our attitude. If there's anyone here involved in reluctant giving, Father, tell them to stop. That's not what you want. 
Help us to be those who don't compartmentalize our worship. Loving the singing, don't tell me how to take care of my money. Service, uh, no more sermons on money. Help us, Father, to be those who truly understand that how we handle our money, how we handle our resources is a true act of worship. Do your work, Father, in our hearts, we pray. In Christ's name, amen.